Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Women are making their voices heard and changing the world. I'll talk with two women leading the way. Chicago Shakespeare's play Mary Stuart has two powerful female leads. We'll meet Queen Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots. And Australia's biggest offshore oil spill didn't get much attention. We'll hear about the spill's effects on the people of West Timor. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. It's International Women's Day. Women in Spain are on strike. They're protesting gender inequality and sexual discrimination. The mayors of Madrid and Barcelona are backing the strike. 300 trains got canceled. Women in Iran are continuing their protest of compulsory headscarves. And the New York Times is reflecting on why its obituaries run about four to one male today. And they did some historical make goods. I read a terrific obituary this morning of the anti-litching campaigner Ida B. Wells. The Women's March that took place this January spoke to the issue of power to the polls. And we're going to talk now on International Women's Day with Renalini Chakraborty. She is the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March, and we talked right before the Women's March. Nice to talk with you again. Thank you so much, Jerome. I really appreciate it. Well, happy International Women's Day. Thank you so much to you, too. You know, you grew up in India. When we talked in our last conversation, we discussed this a little bit. And the interesting thing about International Women's Day is that it doesn't have to be the same every place on the planet, and it takes different shapes and forms. And I was just talking about a few of them. How have you seen it and seen feminism basically taking different shapes and different forms over the years? I think you make a really important point, Jerome, that International Women's Day looks pretty different in other parts of the world. Growing up in India, I had a very apolitical upbringing. So in my own family and in my schooling that I received, you know, this wasn't celebrated in a way that I I wish it were. So growing up in school, we would always talk about this day, you know, like at assembly at the beginning of school, it, it would be just like our head principal giving us sort of a speech on International Women's Day and like why women need to be, you know, valued and respected equally to men. But I wasn't very aware of sort of the larger context of what this day meant for really amazing like feminist work that has been done for several decades. But, you know, it was pretty common for sort of like local feminist organizations to have events that talk about the history of Women's Day, which, as we all know, has a long history from the early 1900s. And it actually started a lot more in like 
socialist feminist circles. The first one in 1909 was to commemorate garment workers in the New York garment district. In those early days, this was a lot more about sort of the rights for working women. And that is something that has really resonated with me. So I saw several feminist thinkers in India, you know, organizing farm workers around International Women's Day in India. So, yeah, I read about it, but unfortunately, I didn't have the privilege of experiencing the celebrations myself when I was growing up. There, there are so many things to rally around on International Women's Day. Uh, there's the labor issues, the equity in the workplace issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Time's Up issues the, uh, that, are, that are really dominant right now. Uh, the Women's March, which you were associated with, uh, focused on power to the polls and really um, political empowerment. How did you land there? Why did why did you want to land on political empowerment? I, I don't want to say land. I feel like it's always it's it's been a long history that brought me to this particular movement, and I was one of the earliest sort of founding members of the national team that uh, put together and coordinated the Women's March, and I continue to be in that role. Even though this particular feminist movement started in the wake of one of the most toxic election cycles that we have seen in recent times, it was very important for us to place this particular moment in the context of the larger movement, right? It's really important for us to remind ourselves again and again that all issues are women's issues and that we are not just fighting for one or two things. You know, like we care deeply about the pay gap. We care deeply about women's reproductive rights. But at the same time, you know, like labor is a women's issues, you know, like in in this country, the majority of low-wage jobs are held by women and even more so by women of color. So, you know, we have to sort of place our movements at the intersection of all of these multiple issues. And we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, we have to deal with all of these things at the at the same time. It was important for me to be in this movement to make sure that voices like my own, an immigrant woman from India, a global South nation who moved to this country by myself at 18, who has been a part of social justice work since I was a teenager myself, it was important that my voice was a part of this movement as it was being shaped, because I don't see myself reflected in many social justice movements, even in this day and age. How do you think it's going with the power to the polls movement? Uh, We're about to have primary elections, and I was reading some statistics. According to the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers, women seeking office is breaking records this year. There's 50 running for the Senate, 415 for the House. Uh, it, It seems to be really working. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first indicator that we got right after the Women's March, Emily's List, which, as we all know, is a national organization that helps elect progressive and pro-choice women candidates to office. Um, They said that they had a record-breaking interest in women who reached out to them to run for office. I think they were saying that in a time period where they usually get about 900 women reaching out to them for help, they had over 20,000. So it's been record-breaking in all ways. We are seeing 
seeing more women running, not just for these national, like these federal races, but also in local races. Right here in Illinois, we have so many women that I know of who are friends of mine who are running for, you know, like Cook County Commissioner, who are running for state Senate races. We're going to be seeing history being made in several local races this year round. And I'm like, I couldn't wait for like November to come sooner to see how beautiful all of our local, state and federal offices look. And I think it's going to be a revolutionary change in terms of how politics works at the local level, because representation is so important. It's been a long time since we've had policies made for all of us by by politicians that look like none of us. How does the Women's March translate its energy into this kind of movement now without without the march, what do people do? How do people interact with the Women's March and the polls? We're going to be focusing on particular states. One thing is clear, through in all 50 states, we are absolutely doubling down and um, engaging in massive voter registration and voter education, educating people about the issues that are important in their local races and asking everybody to vote uh, you know, like to um, register to vote and register others that they know to vote. We have set ourselves a really lofty goal of like over a million, um, you know, voter engagement. People can get connected with us. They can reach out to me. We have local chapters in almost every state. They can get plugged into what their local chapter is doing. There are huddles in almost every single district in the country that they can get plugged into. And there's a constant work that's going on on the ground where Women's March leaders are collaborating with other organizations to to do this work. I noticed on your website that your youth wing of the Women's March is involved in the National School Walkout on March 14th. It's one month after the shootings at Parkland. Yeah, this is the last time I tried. There were over 1,500 walkouts that were um, registered on our national map. Um, and I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that several of them are not even listed. It was really important for the youth on our, in our youth empowerment program, which, you know, I I feel like I, I definitely want to mention that this is a completely youth-led effort. The adult leaders on the Women's March team are merely here in support. This was completely called for by our young leaders in our movement space. Um, and they thought it would be extremely important for us to show up in solidarity with the young leaders who emerged out of the horrible tragedy in Parkland. And um, this is sort of a national, you know, like show of solidarity, but also of like youth collective power. If folks want to learn more about that, they can go to the Women's March website. There is a beautiful toolkit that we have created for any young person who wants to take action on March 14th. And we actually have a public call tonight to help youth organize and learn more about how they can participate on March 14th. So they can find out everything about that at womensmarch.com. Renali Chakraborty is the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. Thanks a lot for joining us. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you so much, Jerome. I appreciate it. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's International Women's Day, and we're talking now with Rafia Zakaria. She's the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan. Nice to talk with you again, Rafia. Great to be on the show today, Jerome. 
You know, we saw your article in Dawn when autocrats, theocrats, and lapsed Democrats pose as liberators of Muslim women. And it was about Saudi Arabia, Iran, and India and what these people are doing right now. It's an unusual situation when these guys who are not true liberators pose as liberators. There's always something going on where they seem to posture themselves as people who are, are doing the right thing for women. Yes, you know, the core idea that I wanted to bring out is that even in these very different political contexts, you know, India is a democracy, Iran is also technically, I guess, a democracy, but a minimal democracy, not a liberal democracy by any means. And then, of course, Saudi Arabia is a monarchy, are all kind of in this uh, weird competition to say that we are liberating women, and in the case of India, particularly Muslim women, the fastest, and we're most committed to it. Of course, none of the three governments, as I talk about in the article, are actually sincerely committed to liberation or to the empowerment of women. It's just politically expedient for them. Uh, You know, Saudi Arabia and Iran are definitely locked into a regional battle for influence and have kind of of a desire to show that they have the ability to sort of embrace a new, uh, more progressive Muslim worldview. And then in India, of course, you have a very autocratic leader who's actually uh, been found implicated in the killing of hundreds and hundreds of Muslims, who is now trying to court uh, Muslim women as a means of splitting the Muslim constituency. They're the largest religious minority in India. He thinks that If he does these things, Muslim women are more likely to vote for him as opposed to, you know, so even if Muslim men don't vote for him. Rafi, I think that situation with Saudi Arabia is particularly interesting right now. We're seeing Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's been in London and he's coming to the United States. And the thing that people are saying is he is a reformer. He is going to let women drive cars in June And this is something we should encourage. He's got a bad streak about this Yemen war, but we've got to work with what we've got and we've got to encourage the things that are good. I mean, it is true that Saudi women can drive now. It is true that uh, they can own businesses now without having a male partner in Saudi Arabia. But no, it has to be sort of contextualized within the larger landscape of Saudi Arabia and issues of political freedom, uh, you know, freedom to dissent and all of those other factors. You know, I mean, I don't want to undermine by any means the efforts that Saudi women themselves have made made to try and have more say within government. But I do hope that if this commitment is sincere, then the crown prince will expand it to other areas such as, you know, having more rights for migrant workers, having more rights for uh, women who are in Saudi Arabia but not Saudi citizens. It is also true that a huge number of women in Saudi Arabia are migrant workers who are not considered Saudi women, but who are still subject to the laws of the kingdom. And it is their position that is even more precarious, I would say, than those of Saudi women within Saudi Arabia. I do think that there is an effort to push the sort of clerical establishment at least a bit 
it to the side. There's some talk now of the veil no longer being mandatory in Saudi Arabia. If that happens, which I mean, you know, it seems almost impossible, I guess, to me. I always have wished that it would happen, not for any opposition to the veil, but because I believe that women have the right to decide what to wear and no government, whether it's the Saudis or the Iranians, should have any say in that. And so that would have a tremendous ripple effect in most of the rest of the Muslim world, particularly the Sunni Muslim world. I mean, I'm from Pakistan. I come from a society that is very heavily influenced by Saudi Arabia. With Iran, I mean, you know, you see the same sort of duplicity. When I wrote the article, for instance, it used to be that the women who didn't cover their hair properly, there was a sort of vice police that went around and that would arrest them and detain them and harass them and fine them. It had been said at that time that they weren't going to do that anymore, that they were just going to, quote, Uh, counsel the women who were not properly covering their hair. But then today, I heard that there were 29 women arrested in Iran who all had been part of the protest against the hijab, I believe, on World Hijab Day, when they had taken off their headscarves in public squares. They're being prosecuted. So you can see then, again, the duplicity of it. And I mean, I, I want to add that these sorts of restrictions, they're definitely not limited to the Muslim world world. I recently read a book about how the Chinese government for the past decade has been pushing single women to get married and has been kind of creating this public shaming that if they don't, that they're deficient somehow or they're not good women and they're not willing to compromise to the extent that now the Communist Party (laughs) is holding these giant Uh, you know, youth matchmaking sessions that single women are forced to attend by their employers, by schools, colleges. It's sad that we are here in 2018. I can video call anybody on Skype uh, within like seconds anywhere in the world. But at the same time, we're still sort of stuck in this archaic time warp where women still have to negotiate what they're going to wear and if they want to marry and how they want to live their lives. I'm talking with Rafia Zakaria, and she's the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan. I wanted to ask you a question about the United States. And recently, the Gates Foundation had a gender strategy that they rolled out, and they're devoting a lot of money to it, $170 million. What do you think of the strategies of a big foundation like that? You know, I have been critical in the past of the Gates Foundation, particularly their initiatives that are supposed to come up with this, you know, magic bullet for liberating women. Um, You know, I wrote last year in the New York Times about the Gates Foundation and one of their programs had decided that chickens were going to be the way that women were going to be liberated. And the whole idea was that if you give women chickens, then they would have eggs and then they would have 
perhaps more chickens and it would be the beginning of this burgeoning business that was going to transform their lives and their power in society. And the critique I made, you know, along with two of my colleagues is it's great to give women financial inclusion and economic impetus. But if you treat women as apolitical creatures and if you don't take seriously the rights of women to participate politically as well as their political identity and it's not just the Gates Foundation, I must add. There are so many international NGOs in particular that raise money in the West and then go out to the quote-unquote rest and try to save women in those contexts who imagine those women conceptually as not having a political identity, as not being as complex individuals as Western women. And that is a stereotype that is perpetuated uh, by white and Western women and in their work, in their sort of orientation in which they say they're going to save women and be the voice for Indian women or be the voice for Afghan women. Of course, this chicken idea didn't work um, for a whole number of reasons. First of all, it wasn't, uh, it had already been tried in many African contexts and other contexts. You know, it's been found that actually just giving women money uh, helps them far more than giving them chickens. And in other cases, it's the larger point, which is that, you know, women need political rights to be able to protect and defend the sort of financial or economic empowerment that they may gain from receiving that aid. You know, I was heartened to see a section within the Gates Foundation, and they do start with a whole sort of emphasis on financial inclusion and increasing women's access to financial institutions like banks, and then another whole section on economic uh, inclusion. And then finally, at the end, they have a section on considering issues like land rights. And unless there is an investment in creating a sort of moral shift at the grassroots level, there's not going to be that change. And the way you do that is not necessarily by uh, saying, well, you know, we want women to have land rights. Go have land rights. And that's not because land rights are not a worthy goal. It's because what you want to do is look at, for instance, the justice or governance mechanisms within the village and then say, we would like to see who the women in this village are that are kind of respected and that have some clout within this village. And we would like to fund an initiative by which they take the initiative to decide what the women of the village need, empower them to decide. So instead of kind of forcing one or another concept down the throat of a particular community, you're actually giving them the license, which I mean, I you know, I shouldn't have to say that, right? I mean, it seems pretty intuitive, but unfortunately, it's not in most NGO policy. Rafia Zakaria is the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan. Thanks a lot for joining us and happy Women International Women's Day. Thank you so much, Earl.
Chicago Shakespeare's play Mary Stewart has two powerful female leads. After the break, I will talk with the actors who play Queen Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Two powerful women take center stage in Chicago Shakespeare's Mary Stuart. One is Mary, Queen of Scots. The other is Queen Elizabeth, who presides over Mary's long imprisonment. I have the actors who play both queens right before me. K.K. Mogi is Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. And Kelly Overby plays the role of Queen Elizabeth. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you. Now, how often do you get in a play with two powerful lead women roles? Has this ever happened to you in your lives before? That's a great question. (laughs) I know. I'm trying to think. I've done over 60 plays, so it's hard to remember. well, I will. I will say for somebody who who looks like me, I'm I'm half Malaysian and half New Zealand. Um, it, it happens very, very rarely. So I'm I'm very grateful and uh, very appreciative to be in this role. Me too. Me too. Um, uh, I don't think that I've I've. Uh, there aren't many plays or films or television shows that pass the Bechtel. It's the Bechtel test, right? Um, and this one does for sure. Well, it's an interesting thing because uh, even though your characters are powerful women in this play, it seems like they are controlled by the patriarchy. Absolutely, 100%. I think that's one of the reasons why our director, Jen Thompson, wanted to do it. Um, there are women with all of the responsibility of power, but not necessarily all of the access to power, which is what makes it kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been a topic of conversation that, that we talk about all the time, um, particularly, um, you know, with everything that's been going on recently with hashtag Me Too and, and also with the cycle of elections that we've just had with Hillary Clinton. Um, you can say that that one wonders if much has actually changed in the last 500 years. <laughs> Very true. I think about Hillary all the time. Yeah, that's right. Me too. <laughs> the, uh, why, why is this applicable, so applicable to today? I think a lot of people are probably scratching their heads and saying, well, what do you mean? These are queens and from long ago. Well, did, these are, these are queens under political reign. Um, that that really, as you said, uh, at the end of it all, apart from their fancy titles and and their their images, didn't really have much power. And uh, and I think you know one of the things that we sort of reflect on is well for for me I can't speak for anybody else, but when you look at the election cycle that we just had with you know arguably one of the most qualified candidates who being a female and one and arguably one of the most uneducated political candidates that we've had um who happened to be male, and this is where we are now you know as a woman you you sort of you sort of do draw par- parallels that's that's kind of the thing that I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think that there currently, you know, still exists a, a double standard. Uh, women have to be twice as good to get half as far as men do. And um, it's evidenced in the play. It was evidenced in the last presidential election. Um, it's evidenced every day. 
um, you know, women get one day out of 365 <laughs> today. <laughs> today, so that's one. I'm talking with the actors from the Chicago Shakespeare play Mary Stewart. Kelly Overby plays the role of Queen Elizabeth. K.K. Mogi is Mary Stewart, Queen of Scots. We have a clip, and I think uh, you're pleading for your life, Mary Stewart, in this Ooh. clip. Get ready. <laughs> What you came to say, say, speak quickly. I cannot believe you came here purely out of cruelty. Say to me then, say you are free, Mary. You have felt my heel hard on your head. Now learn to love the hand that gives freedom. Speak. I will receive my life, my freedom from your lips. One word reverses my disaster. I am waiting. Please do not make me wait too long. And sister, if it is not with blessings that you leave me departing like a gracious goddess, then I fear for you, and not for this whole kingdom, for all the kingdom that this wide sea touches, would I desire to have your power, cousin. So are you finally defeated, Mary? All your plots wrecked? No alleyway assassins? No desperate adventurers determined to be your errant knights? Yes, Lady Mary, it is all over. No more fools will stumble into your clutches. Now the world's eyes are elsewhere. That's Kelly Overby as Queen Elizabeth and K.K. <laughs> Mogi as Mary Stewart, Queen Oof, of Scots. Is that what we sound yeah. like? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are really bringing it there. I don't think you're going to win there, K.K. Uh, yeah. well, is... She know. does such a good job. Too. Oh, ditto. <laughs> my love. <laughs> uh, even in that clip, you see a little, uh, my sister, my, uh, you know, you, you've, there's a bond that mm. these women have mm. in their weird uh, power trap mm. that is real. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that Peter Oswald really, um, who does the translation of Schiller's play, which is um, the translation we're doing, uh, you know, Schiller really um, uh, fantasized this meeting of two queens that never really happened from historical facts. And but but the but the facts of history were that they did have this sort of sisterly correspondence mm-hmm. with letters with letters that um, that really at the start of their relationship was was quite loving and was quite sort of collaborative as women. And what ended up happening was the the men that surrounded. Uh, Elizabeth's political reign were really the people responsible for for tearing apart that 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 correspondence and ultimately that cracking that relationship. Divide um, and conquer. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Uh, what is it about um, the patriarchy that makes it so bad? I mean, people think, well, if women get in power, it'll be better. Everything will be better. <laughs> well, but I will it, say, women this, get in power, and then it, it, it's still controlled by the. Patriarchy. I mean, this is this is part of historical fact too. Uh, in the short four years that Elizabeth um, and Mary were in reign, when Mary was Queen of Scots and Elizabeth was in power, in those short four years was arguably the most tempered that England and Scots had been in terms of its religious rivalry with the Protestants and the Catholics, meaning both Mary and Elizabeth at that time did everything that they could to temper away from any kind of confrontation that um, those two religious factions had with each other. And so it was, uh, it, uh, they, they, talk, they talk about it being one of the most tempered, quiet, calm moments of that time. And it wasn't until after Mary was imprisoned 
um, that the that the political rise of of the religious factions started rising up again, and that was when you know males were in the ear of Elizabeth. So so as historical fact, we kind of have an example of that. So if we go to see the play, we will not have our hopes crushed that if women <laughs> take power, uh, things are going to be better. Well, I don't know. You'll have to come and see the play. <laughs> We're about to elect a lot more women, by the way. That's right. I think yeah, there I are over so. 500 women running for political offices this year. Absolutely. Now, um, it, it, uh, what kind of reaction are people having to the play? I mean, a lot of people may, might think they're coming to see a uh, historical set piece that has no contemporary it's application. It's action-packed, and, man. And, and it's a political thriller kind of thing. It is. It's, it's very exciting. Uh, we get a lot of woot-woots. We get a lot of woot-woots. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, one of the things – I was asked this question before, and and – our director, Jen Thompson, mentioned this, which I think is absolutely right. It isn't actually a museum piece. It's a very um, – um, it does have a very contemporary feel. It's very relatable. It's very relatable. It's not It's not the kind of show that's going to make you feel disassociated. It's actually a kind of show that you're going to get pulled into. And it is. It's a wild ride. I mean, you know, um, with that little clip that we just heard, this, there's definitely some peaks in there. But there's also some, some pretty – hilarious moments <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> there's fun tragedy there's fun. can be very funny <laughs> there's some fun and and just just seeing all the 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 intrigue and the relationships and the double crossing and the manipulation and the chess moves that people are making yeah. um to follow along and and know what some people know on stage and some people don't know on stage it's, kind of, it's fun yeah are you taking your roles home with you and being uh, dictatorial to your <laughs> well we were just talking about how how exhausted we are today so <laughs> it's exhausting <laughs> be a monarch. being a monarch it, it oh, really is it really is <laughs> well congratulations on your uh, achieved status in life uh, Kelly, thank you uh, KK Mogi is Mary Stewart Queen of Scots and Kelly Overby is Queen Elizabeth and you can see them at Chicago Shakespeare's Mary Stewart. It is running through April 15th. You've got a month. Uh, great to meet you. It sounds like a great time. Very Thank nice you very to meet much. you. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Australia's biggest offshore oil spill ever didn't get much attention, but we're going to hear about the oil spill's effects on the people of West Timor after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Peace on Earth Film Festival starts on Friday, March 9th. I'm emceeing the opening night of the festival. I've done it several times before. It's always great. With me is Nick Angotti, founder of the Peace on Earth Film Festival. Great to see you, Nick. Great being here, Jerome. Um, for people who don't know anything about the Peace on Earth Film Festival, what are you doing? 
The nature of film is since its inception has been um, on the vanguard of change. And with all the violence we see in films today, uh, that could account for why there's so much violence in the world. So came up with this idea that if film has such a profound influence on society, why not a festival that raises awareness on peace, nonviolence, social justice, and sustainable world? And you do themes and groupings of different kinds of films uh, throughout the festival, throughout the three-day festival. And we're going to talk about a few that are involved with oil these days. And you've got a couple of Standing Rock films on Saturday, Saturday at 11.30. Yes, we have several films on Standing Rock. What actually begins to approach the whole thing is we need to come into a better consciousness with ourselves, with each other, and with the world. But the theme really is about what corporations are doing, what oil companies are doing, and hence um, this wonderful film out of Australia called Crude Injustice, which I put together with these two other films on Standing Rock. A Crude Injustice was done by Jane Hammond, a director of A Crude Injustice. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jane. Great to be here. Thank you. Jane, how did you get involved with this story? And your story is about people in West Timor. People might have heard of, of East Timor, an independence movement there, but West Timor is a part of Indonesia, and they were affected by an oil spill. How did you find out about them and want to do something about it? Yeah, in uh, 2009, off the West Australian coast, we had what became Australia's biggest offshore oil disaster, the Montara oil disaster. And hardly anybody really has heard much about it. At the time, I was working as a journalist for the West Australian newspaper when the story broke. And it struck me immediately that this was a story that really needed to be told. But there wasn't a lot of interest. I went to one of the first press conferences with the company. And they were saying that, oh, don't worry about it. It's only a bit of oil. There's nothing out there. It's an environmental desert. Now, I come from a background in partially in sustainability and environmental science, and I knew that to be a complete and utter lie. So that, as a journalist, sparked my interest immediately. And that interest kept going. I left the West Australian in 2012. I took redundancy like a, a lot of people in my industry. And I was still talking at that time to Ferdy Tononi, who was a businessman up in West Timor and runs the West Timor Care Foundation. And he was trying to tell the world about this story and not a lot of people were listening. And I did as many stories as I could with the West Australian, which is the only daily newspaper in Perth where I come from. But still, there wasn't much happening. So I decided to go to film school and retrain. And so I did a master's in um, communications. And one of the reasons was to tell this story. I wanted the people to tell it themselves. I thought the medium of film was the strongest way to do that. It's interesting because you really zone in on the people in West Timor and what happened to them. And they, uh, they essentially tell the story for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that people telling stories in their own voices is really the best way to go to understand the extent and the impact when you meet these people on film and how credible they are, how gentle they are and how they've just got on with their lives as best they could under fairly extreme circumstances. I mean, when I went up there and started these interviews... I was shocked myself at the extent of the impact, the extent geographically of the impact of this oil and the ongoing impact on people's lives. I was doing the story seven years after the spill. 
but still the economics of it, the impact was being felt, and particularly on the children, because in West Timor it costs parents money to send their kids to school. So with the collapse of their financial ability, the family economies, there were children who were taken out of school and still had not been returned. So there's essentially a generation of kids who've missed out on schooling through an environmental disaster that wasn't of their making. Yeah, this is very much a story about environmental justice and how often it's the people who have nothing to do with the story who feel its greatest impact and and have to fight for the basic right to get some form of compensation and some sort of recognition. Can you reflect on the health of their business prior to the oil spill and, and let the audience know the kind of business they had going at the time? Yeah, West Timor is a very poor region. It's a sort of forgotten area that no one really ever goes there. It's way off the tourist trail. When the dry season comes, there's very little to eat. It was an area in quite a lot of poverty. And because it's Australia's nearest neighbour, there was an ongoing issue between what Australia claimed as its fishing rights and what Indonesia claimed. So one of the things that the Australian government did in 2000 was to go up into West Timor and start to set up alternatives to the taking of trochus shells and all these sorts of things from Australian reefs and to protect the environment in Australia and the fishing rights. So they set up seaweed farming as an alternative and it became a very popular way of making money. The water was fairly clean. It was a very accessible industry because all people needed were a bit of rope and a few recycled water bottles you could pick up off the ground, basically. But the ropes cost money and people had to invest what little money they did have. Some took out loans and they started just these seaweed farms fairly close to the shore They would just tether the ropes to the seafloor and then float them up on water bottles and put strings of seaweed off those ropes. In a little while, you had a fantastic harvest. And so the economy was really picking up. People were, for the first time, able to start sending their kids to university because the economy had changed so much for individuals in West Timor because of this industry that they called green gold. But then in 2009, after the Montara oil spill... Within weeks of it happening, these seaweed farms just disintegrated. The seaweed turned to a kind of a porridge, as the people call it, a a white, mushy porridge, and fell to the seafloor, worthless. And so they went from the whole communities harvesting quite reasonable amounts to harvesting absolutely nothing. It effectively crashed overnight. And so too the fishing stocks as well. The fishermen started returning without any fish. I mean, there are other issues for why fishing is disappearing up in Indonesia, partly because of the overfishing and the mass trawlers that come into the areas. We're talking with Jane Hammond. She's the director of Accrued Injustice. It's showing at the Peace on Earth Film Festival, and it's showing at 1130 on Saturday, March 10th at the Davis Theatre. You know, it's interesting in the film, you make the comparison to the deep water horizon in the Gulf of Mexico and what happened in the U.S., because they both really spilled a lot of oil and were out of control for a long time. And it sounds like the Montero thing was capped for a second and then blew up. And in the Gulf, there was a big settlement and there was a lot of lawyers and there was $20 billion. What happened with this deal in Australia with Montero? Yeah, that's exactly the point. Montero happened 10 months before the Gulf of Mexico event, before the Deepwater Horizon event. 
And it just had nothing like the sort of publicity, nothing like the world attention that your spill did. But there are direct comparisons. The same sorts of dispersants that we used in the Gulf of Mexico were also used in the open waters in the Timor Sea. And it looks like the same sort of health impacts as that dispersant floated up to Indonesia and lapped upon those beaches. We are seeing health effects that you also witnessed in the Gulf of Mexico people with strange skin inflictions that they never had before, whole villages impacted with these sort of nasty sores that's still ongoing. So we have people that's just coming out of the sea, scratching and scratching till their skin erupts in kind of boils. It's quite hideous and very frustrating for the people and there's nothing they can do about it. So those comparisons are really there and we've looked to the research that's been done in the Gulf of Mexico to say, look, we should be doing the same thing. The amount of research that was done here was fantastic. But by comparison, Montara is the very poor little brother of this event and the people have seen not a cent in compensation. In fact, the company is still fighting for the acknowledgement that this oil and these dispersants ever even reached the shores of Indonesia. So it's a sort of an ongoing issue. Montara, the PPTEP, the Australian-based Thai-owned oil company that was responsible for the spill, it ended up paying 510000 Australian dollars in fines for breaching regulations. So when you compare that to what has happened in the Gulf of Mexico, it's just so glaringly disparate that you really kind of just shake your head in disbelief. Now, it sounds like the people of West Timor have gotten together and they have an attorney, they have a case now, they're taking it to Australia, and your film shows that and is talking about that, and it sounds like your film's getting attention, the case is getting attention, and something might happen. Yeah, we're crossing our fingers that something will happen to solve this injustice. The people of West Timor who were impacted by this bill really just sort of got on with their lives. They didn't know that there was the right to actually take this sort of issue up in the Australian courts because we had a Government Commission of Inquiry in 2010 that came out with findings that this was really a failure, failure by the company but also of Australian regulators to really monitor this industry. The Commission found the regulators had what was known as a tick-and-flick approach the uh, environmental regulations, the oil spill plan, everything was just tick, off you go, no worries, do what you like. And so the company was very complacent. It was described by the commissioner who undertook the inquiry as an accident waiting to happen. It was just so far off good oil field practice that in anybody's books it was a travesty and a grave injustice to the people who have paid the price. Uh, You know, film, I believe, is a great opportunity to create awareness. Were you able to utilize accrued injustice uh, within the Australian communities to uh, bring awareness to what happened to these islanders? Absolutely. Um, I've done a premiere in Perth and we'll be taking the film around telling this story. And I made the film because I believed that Australians would react when they knew the story because we are a a fair people and we believe in a fair go and really no one likes to see an Australian based company do this to the environment and do this to people and get away with it. So it's starting to have an impact in that sense and also in Indonesia 
because the Indonesian government was a little bit circumspect as to uh, rock the boat. You know, they made a few demands of the company, but nothing much was happening. So the film is being used in Indonesia to let the government know that there is a movement in Australia, uh, that the class action is happening, that the people are credible, they have a case. We've got testimony and visual accounts of what happened. A film has a great power to do that sort of thing. It has the power to tell stories in a way that people can relate to them. Well, it's great that you've made a crude injustice and you're going to be here for the Peace on Earth Film Festival on March 10th at the Davis Theatre. And I really enjoyed talking with you, Jane Hammond. Thank you very much. And it's a great honour to be part of this fantastic festival and to be, you know, alongside films on Standing Rock. That's a story that we've felt very strongly in Australia. Yeah, it's really an incredible opportunity. And thank you very much. And Nick Angaidi, it's great to see you. And I know that there's other films that people can see at the Peace on Earth Film Festival. There's one I'm looking forward to in particular about bicycles, Bicycle City. Ah, yes. Bicycle City is about an organization that takes bicycles into uh, different areas of the world. This particular film is about Nicaragua and how bicycles have shifted the entire economy after Civil War by taking people from walking into giving them opportunity to actually get places quicker, they're actually shifting the economy. Yeah, the uh, Nicaraguan city of Rivas was the first to begin uh, receiving used bikes in Nicaragua in 1991. And the film is about the economic transformation that took place when everybody gets a form of transportation. I work with working bikes a lot who collect used bikes and send them all around the world and help create mobility and economies. You can start your own bike shop and they train people to be bike mechanics. And bicycles are a terrific way to get around, certainly responsible. And I would really encourage people to see Bicycle City when it comes to the Peace on Earth Film Festival. It's coming up on uh, Saturday night, I believe. Yes, Saturday evening. Uh, Bicycle City is actually uh, uh, late afternoon at 420. And you can find all the information at our website, peaceonearthfilmfestival.org, uh, and just put in schedule, and you'll be able to see the schedule and find the film you're looking for. Nick Angadi with the Peace on Earth Film Festival. It starts on March 9th at the Davis Theater and runs all weekend. There are panel discussions with filmmakers and peacemakers. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for making your contribution to peace. Thank you very much, Jerome. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.